I'm going to start a timer so that I don't go too far over because I am Presbyterian. Okay. So many of you have heard my testimony, um, or at least have heard bits and pieces of it. But for those of you who are unfamiliar with it, I am a born again, saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, uh, Christian who has a past of struggling with alcoholism and drug addiction. And as an addict in recovery, a common pattern that I see or a common theme in my life as I look back and I reflect upon God's grace, but also I look back on my own foolishness, um, I, see a, I see a theme and it's double-mindedness or I lived a double life really well, right? I would go to class most of the time, uh, do my homework, I would study, I would maintain a reasonable GPA, a 3.2, a 3.3, um, and I would smoke every single day. I would put on a friendly, happy face. I would make social appearances and be energetic and goofy and the life of the party. I would be fun. I would be the one who they knew I was energetic. And so I would fulfill people's image of me by being that person. And I would be the one drinking too much often to black out. I would go to work. I would do everything that was expected of me and even exceed the expectations of those over me. And I would go hang out with friends that lived where I worked to take Adderall and drink on the job. I would even go to a party where I would be drinking and smoking and doing all the stuff. And more than half of the time, this is what blows my mind actually looking back, and more than half of the time I was talking to them about Jesus. Here's the point. Of course I know that this story is not all of your stories. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Of course I know that. But I think the point still remains to one degree or another, we all live a double life where we say one thing and we do another, where our words don't match our action. We may say that we believe in God, but our actions often tell a different story. Or externally, people may think that we have everything together Right? People even say, man, how's it, how's it seem like you're so happy? It seems like you got everything together. But internally, we are paralyzed by fear of failure and not being good enough. We're super anxious on the inside, so we're blowing up on our friends or our boyfriend or our girlfriend or our family members because of minor offenses. Or we're super insecure in our body image or how we look or maybe even our personality, constantly wanting the approval of others in order to make us feel like we're okay in order to make us feel like we're safe and we're settled and we're secure in who we are and who we're becoming. In a similar way in our passage tonight, and really in all of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is putting all of our hearts on the operating table. And he's soberly looking at us as his beloved, and he's taking our face in his hands. He's saying, your heart is restless in its inconsistency in its double-mindedness, in its relentless pursuit of wholeness, of flourishing outside of me. And that's why he tells us in Matthew, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I will provide for you rest. Jesus is concluding this section of the Sermon on the Mount where he started. And so we're going to look at that question too again. What does true human flourishing look like? Because I've, oft, I've often said this, and I'll say it again because it's funny, but I meet with a lot of you one-on-one, and usually whenever I say, hey, how are you doing? I have not once heard that you're flourishing. Not once. Man, I'm flourishing. 
So what does a true human flourishing look like in God's kingdom? Well, tonight God, through his son Jesus, urges our hearts to look at two ways God's kingdom manifests itself. Number one, it's a kingdom of sacrifice. In other words, self-denial. And number two, it's a kingdom of love. In other words, self-death is my word, self-death. Let's look at the first of the two, a kingdom of sacrifice or self-denial. Again, here, Jesus starts with this trifold pattern that we see uh, repeatedly in this section of Scripture. What do I mean by this trifold pattern? Well, he says, you've heard it said, there's a statement, but I say to you, there's an explanation of the law's true extent, the true intent. And so we saw earlier in context where Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law. I have come to fulfill it and then to reveal to you its fullest expression, what it always was meant to be and to say. That's what it always was. Sorry, I lost my spot because my page was on the wrong page. So, so you've heard it said, statement, but I say to you, explanation. Okay, and so what does Jesus say about his kingdom with regard to this specific text whenever it comes to retaliation? right? So he says, you've heard it said in verse 38 above, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, right? You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. In the Old Testament, this was called the law of retaliation, and it was God's good means of maintaining justice. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 20 and 21, there's an example of a witness who declared that he saw something, but it was a potentially a false witness. And if he accused his brother falsely, then the consequence of that perjury is what that's called. That's lying in court is the very same punishment that the original person would have received if he was guilty. For instance, let me reword it this way. In the Old Testament, if you stole, let's say, $100 for the sake of the illustration, if you stole $100, then the law of retaliation would say you would pay back 200 Because if you stole 100 right? You would pay back what they lost and then a hundred, what you would have gained. You see it? So it's perfect justice in the eyes of God within this context. One author said it this way, this law was designed to prevent two wrongs, severe retribution that did not fit the crime, right? Murder for death. So if I stole a hundred dollars and you murdered me, that does not fit the crime. And so there was severe retribution that did not fit the crime. That's what he was trying to prevent. And then number two, a self-appointed vigilante action, Right, that you would, you would take retribution, you would take, you would take action yourself and make right those wrongs. It is important to note, again, that Jesus is not disagreeing with Mosaic law here. That's not what he's doing. Because in these, in, these, in these words of, you've heard it said, but I say to you, he's not disregarding the law. He's not saying there's anything wrong with it. What he's putting his finger on is the misunderstanding, the misinterpretation of the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes at the time. And so, this is a good command. It is good. It is righteous. It is good. This is a great prevention tool for individual acts of revenge. But the true heart level virtue is actually verse 39, where he says, But I say to you, what does he say? Do not resist the one who is evil. What? What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is expressing, again, the fullest intent of the Mosaic law by unveiling that our heart's temptation is to do what? Our heart's temptation is to get revenge. Our heart's temptation is to take matters into our own hands and to be the one who who stands up for our own rights 
and then we make it right ourselves. At least that's our heart temptation. Our heart's temptation is to take and to seek personal revenge on those who hurt us. For the sake of an image here, um, I love this. I love this scene. It's, it's very popular, but from Les Mis, right? Uh, a, a man named Jean Valjean. Um, he just gets out of prison and he comes to the bishop's house, right? And, and the bishop allows him to stay the night. And, and many of you may know the scene, but he ends up staying the night and he wakes up in the middle of the night and he steals a bunch of silver. Um, and then, uh, of course, the bishop wakes up. He hears a noise. And he comes out. You know, he's kind of in the shadows and he comes out and he punches him right in the face. Um, lights out. And then, uh, and then in the morning, as, as he's kind of frustrated and, and they're going back and forth, the police come um, and they say, hey, this man, uh, you know, we, we found him in the town hall trying to, to, to leave with all this silver. Um, and, he, and he said that this was this, that you gave it to him. And he's like, well, I did. He goes, Jean Valjean, what are you doing? I did, I did give that to him. And he said, actually, you forgot the candlesticks. And so he goes and he gets the candlesticks and he gives them, this is, if you may have seen different versions of it, but this is one of them. And so he goes and gets the candlesticks and he, and he puts it in the bag, right? And, the, and so the police are like, so you're telling me that he didn't steal these, but you gave it. And he's like, yes, of course. And in fact, I'm upset that he left without the candlesticks, right? It's this whole scene. It's really beautiful. And then in this moment where the police uh, unshackle him and he's a free man, um, the bishop looks at him, right, and he says that I have just bought you at a price. That you are free, right? Go and change your life, and right, and the whole movie is about, is really centered on this, on this beautiful scene. And so what he could have done is he could have retaliated, right? But in this moment, he not only took a strike to the face, and he didn't seek his own honor, but in fact, he, he showed grace and mercy. This bishop actually encapsulates um, this beautifully and exemplifies it beautifully. Jesus is saying that a greater righteousness, one that exceeds the Pharisees, if you're wondering why I say that, because all of this is based off of context. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. And that's chapter 5, verse 20. And so Jesus is saying that a greater righteousness, one that exceeds that of the Pharisees, is letting God be the ultimate judge and the distributor of justice as the one who promises that one day he's going to right every wrong. He's going to undo every hurt. And one day he's going to look his beloved in the eye and he's going to wipe your tear away. He's going to say that you are whole. And I am here and I've never left you. I've never forsaken you. And this gives us good news for those who have been hurt, those who have been abused, those who have been affected by sin in this world, that we have a God who promises in his word that there is going to be justice that will be handed out, that he is the just and he's the justifier. Therefore, as sons and daughters of God, Jesus is calling us to sacrifice for the kingdom of God, a deep-seated, single-minded self-denial of personal revenge for the sake of God's glory and ultimately his kingdom advancement. But what does this look like? Well, in the passage, again, he tells us the statement, he, re he restates the fullest extent of the law, and then he actually gives illustrations, right? What are they? Look with me. Um, at verses 39b and following, it says, right, turn the other cheek. It says, if sued for your inner garment, the disciples must give up their outer garment as well. 
Number three, go the extra mile. Number four, disciples are called to deep generosity, especially to those in need. Here's the point. Often the righteous thing to do is to endure evil against you. And often the just thing to do is to not seek self-justice. Now you're going to hear that, and there has to be a nuance here, because this is a principle. This is not an absolute, right? So this is not a hard and fast principle, meaning there may be times to resist, because what do we see? We see Jesus resisting temptation. What else do we see? We see the Israelites resisting invading enemies, The abused resist abusers, but the principle is this. Jesus is getting at the reality that we don't want to respond to violence with more violence is the reality. But of course, we have to have localized wisdom. So don't hear what I'm not saying, that there is localized wisdom and there are case-by-case bases. But the principle is if someone strikes you on the cheek, instead of demanding justice yourself and lights out like you did to the bishop, it's actually taking that and showing them the other cheek. And you're actually, you're moving towards the kingdom of God in that moment. And trust me, whenever I tell you, my story did not teach me that. My story taught me, uh, right, that if you, if you disrespect me, then I will put my hands on you, right? And that's the reality that I grew up in. But I'm telling you right here, though, that Jesus' kingdom is different. And so how will we grow in wisdom as we seek to be faithful to God's word, right? One, uh, we observe Jesus' behavior whenever he was falsely accused. What did we see? In Matthew 26, you could write this down and look at it later. In Matthew 26, 67, Jesus remained silent, right? Not needing to self-justify. When Jesus was mocked and beaten, he didn't personally retaliate. Why? Because it is Jesus' nature to fully trust the Father for vindication, It is our nature to seek our own vindication. Jesus is painting a picture of what true human flourishing looks like within his kingdom, and that means we follow him. Application questions. Let me slow down. With wisdom, how might God be calling us to turn the other cheek in a situation in our personal lives? Who may be someone that God is putting on your heart to go the extra mile with, so to speak, even though this person drains a lot of your time? a lot of your emotional energy, a lot of your space. Where might God be calling you to be generous with your time and your treasure and your talent? Where might God be convincing, convicting your heart towards self-denial? Whatever it may be for you, I want you to fill it in. Maybe it's less time doing this, social media, um, hanging out with friends, to go serve, for instance. What might that be? What might self-denial in your own schedule look like? But not only does God give us a vision of human flourishing in the sacrifice and self-denial, but God's kingdom also manifests itself as a kingdom of love, or what I am calling self-death. So number two, a kingdom of self-death, or a kingdom of love. Look with me in verse 43. It says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is really interesting. And uniquely, this is different than all the previous statements and examples. How? Well, Jesus here critiques misuse of scripture boldly by quoting the Old Testament, love your neighbor. This is in Leviticus 19, right? We know that, love your neighbor. But then adding a traditional misquotation, hate your enemy. We don't find that anywhere in Scripture. 
And so why is this? Why, why does he say this? Why does Jesus say, hate your enemies? Well, in the Old Testament, it could be an inevitable view or an idea based on Scripture, though it's not biblical, whereby people express their hatred toward their enemies or God's hatred towards sin. Let me give you two examples. In Psalm 97, uh, verse 10, it says, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints, and he delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Let me give you another example in Psalm 119, 113. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. Here's the point. Though God's, words, though God's word speaks of the Lord hating evil and David even expressing hatred of the wickedness against him, this here is twisted to hate your enemy. The Bible never calls us to hate our enemies. Therefore, Jesus' vision of true human flourishing in his kingdom is that of a kingdom love and self-death. Jesus is painting a picture of a whole person counterformation, a whole person holiness that manifests itself uniquely in love, not only for neighbor, but for your enemy. That's self-death. I want you to think about who your enemy is, because this language is kind of hard, right, to think about, but I want you to think about who, who is it who would be considered your enemy or someone that you really uh, disregard. You don't think highly of them for whatever reason, whether it be they just don't see eye to eye, they're a different class than you, they're a different socioeconomic background than you, uh, totally on different playing fields, intellectually, emotionally, whatever it may be, think about that person. And what Jesus is calling us to is self-death, not my will be done, but yours. And Jesus calls us into loving our, even our enemy. Read, verse, uh, read uh, with me verses 46 through 48. It says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Number one, there is a, no reward for returning kindness for kindness. An image here, uh, a silly one. I kind of came up with the last, last second, but I, it was kind of funny. Like David Allen Barnes II, my son, giving a sucker after Mikey just gave him a sucker, right? That's, that's not what this is teaching, right? He's like, oh, well, you gave me a sucker. I'm going to give you a sucker. We're like, we're sucker friends, all right? This is as if Mikey hit David with the sucker, right? Threw it at him, and David brought it back and said, here's your sucker back. Just a funny little image there, but number two, greeting only your brothers instead of enemies, right? Decency is not the heart of the command. So two things that he's getting at is returning kindness for kindness is not at the heart of the command and in just decency is not the heart of what the law was actually getting to and what Jesus is revealing to us. And Jesus concludes with perfection. What exactly is Jesus saying? Have you ever read this and you're like, I'm out, Right? What does he say? Let's read it one more time. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. What exactly is Jesus saying? The Greek word here is teleos, and that word actually means whole. It means mature. It means complete. So Jesus is saying we must be mature or whole like our heavenly father is mature and whole. Jesus is calling us to imitate our father by responding to his son. 
right? Again, we start with this big question, returning back to the Beatitudes, where it's, it's, the Beatitudes is starting with this blessed. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. For those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart and peacemakers. But then where does it end? What does true human flourishing, wholeness, completeness look like in the Christian life? It looks like persecution. It looks like turning the other cheek. It looks like being reviled. Right? What does he say in the Beatitudes at the end there in verse 11? Blessed are y'all when others revile y'all and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in, uh, is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets before you. What does true human flourishing look like? It's a life of resistance. It's a life of struggle. It's a life of heartache. It's a life of moving from double-mindedness to single-mindedness. I'm sorry to say that whenever you come to faith in Jesus, it's not rainbows and butterflies. It's actually a life of self-death. All these points point back to the Beatitudes. Blessed are the fill-in-the-blank culminating in persecution. Why? Because Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment and example of the beatific vision. Therefore, placing our full, single-minded allegiance and trust in Jesus Christ is the path to human flourishing. It is the path to human flourishing. It is the path to maturity and wholeness. This passage directly links to Jesus' Passion Week. You might say, well, how does it link to Jesus' Passion Week? Like, 20 chapters from now. And it does it intentionally to connect us to Jesus. How? In verse 39b, it says, if anyone slaps or strikes you on the right cheek, him, uh, turn him the other cheek. In Matthew 26, I said this earlier, it says this though explicitly. It says, they spit in his face. They spit in Jesus' face. The king of creation who took on flesh. They spit in his face. You know that's me and you? They struck him and then they slapped him. The same Greek word that's used here is the same Greek word that is used in Jesus' Passion Week, where it says that they slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is the one that struck you? They're mocking the one who created them in their womb, who created them in the image of God, who created them good, but sees that they've been corrupted by sin. And he does not retaliate, does he? In fact, in that moment, he chooses God's will over his own will. In that moment, he actually goes to the cross. Why does he go to the cross? Why does he die a death? He was innocent. He was an innocent man. A man who lived in this world, who took on this stuff with blood and oxygen, and he was a human person who underwent one of the most tragic and gruesome deaths at the time, a Roman crucifixion, and he died a brutal death of an innocent man. Why? So that you and I would never have to face that death and separation from God. And that in that moment, whenever he died and he released his spirit, go back and read that. He says he releases his own spirit as the Lord of life. And what he's saying is in that moment, the father turned his face away from his only son so that we would never have to know and feel and experience the true abandonment of our creator. Because in that moment, Jesus became sin. In Scripture, it says that anyone who is hanged on a cross is cursed. 
Jesus took our curse upon himself. And he died. He died the death that we deserve, rightfully and justly, because of our sin and rebellion. And then three days later, what we're looking forward to in this season of Lent, three days later, he conquered sin. Three days later, he conquered Satan. Three days later, he conquered everyone's biggest fear in this room. He conquered death itself. He conquered death itself. And then in his resurrection, you know what that is? It's basically a trailer of the future. In his resurrection, it's a trailer saying, here's a preview of what is to come. In fact, my whole life was a preview of this kingdom. So here he is not talking about salvation through grace and faith. What he's talking about is there is a call to discipleship. And that call comes at a price. Because you're already saved by grace through faith. But the price is self-denial and self-love. Self, uh, self-denial and... Um, and in, in, in giving up our will. In Galatians 5, 16 through 21, it says this. This is powerful. It's, it's convicting to me. So I'm not just saying, like, this is convicting to my own heart. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. Why? To keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. Yes, it was that bad back then. And things like these. I warn you, as I warned before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So I want to end with some application questions. How are we doing? Do we have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Is our righteousness merely external, while our hearts are actually really far away from God? Do we claim to follow Jesus and to submit to his authority while our hearts are worshiping at the altar of wanting to chase money or esteem or sex or relationships or comfort or acceptance or control of our own future? Do our lives align with our professions? If one of our friends saw our bank statement, or if they saw, I use this here and there, a bank statement or a bank statement, but with our time, would they conclude that Jesus is at the center of our lives? That we truly believe that, that he is not just a man, but he is man and God, and he died for our sake. In order for what? To give us new life in him. To break the bounds of, and the enslavement of sin in our lives and to provide victory and newness. In conclusion, Jesus has lived the perfect life in our place. He has died the death that we deserve for our sin and he was raised from the dead in order to bring newness of life as we follow him and trust in this vision of human flourishing. And I promise you right now that this vision of human flourishing is going to be hard. By God's profound grace and mercy, he gives you mountaintops. But the most of the Christian life 
is often in the valley and then coming up, and he's being gracious to give us grace in those areas. But it involves a daily self-denial to our wants and desires and a daily self-death to our own wills in order to be solely single-minded towards Yahweh. And so he calls us, he ends, it's, it's not a coincidence that he ends this section so powerfully. He ends with, you must be perfect or whole as your heavenly father is perfect. And right before that, he goes through um, being salt and light. Well, how do you do that? Well, anger, murder, lust, adultery, divorce. And he talks about these key topics that end with retaliation and ultimately the most the most fulfillment of this is loving your neighbor and loving your enemy. That's where he ends this section. This is the call of the Christian life. By God's grace, we are indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit that puts to death sin so that we can rise to new life every day. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Uh, thank you for the good news and the gospel of grace that washes over us and refreshes us anew. It enlivens our spirit. It reminds us of who you are and who we are in return. And so, Lord, wherever each student is in this room, I pray that your word would be gracious and gentle, but it also would spark and convict who we're really and truly meant to be in this world because you ultimately care so much that you sent your son to provide the substitutionary atonement, provide the price that it costs for sin. But it didn't leave us there. It brought us to new life in you. So would you allow us to live in the freedom of this new life now? We pray this in the strong name of Christ. Amen.